that uh, we have been seeing in the Heidelberg Catechism, especially um, in the last third that deals with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We have been seeing over and over that um, doctrine is to affect our lives. In in other words, the, the truth of Scripture does not leave us unchanged if we are Christians. Uh, if, we are, if we are believers in Christ, there should be a, a change in us. And, and we see that all throughout the catechism. Uh, specifically, as we see here, God's forgiveness of us is to change and affect the way that we treat other people. Uh, God has forgiven us an uncountable debt And that should affect us and how we treat other people. In other words, because we are a forgiven people, we are to be a forgiving people. It just makes sense. And that's what the the catechism says. A, A Christian who will not forgive or a Christian who will not ask for forgiveness is really an oxymoron. It it just doesn't make sense. How can I, after I've been forgiven this this massive debt of my sin, how can I not forgive a a fellow believer who asks for forgiveness? Uh, Jesus told a parable about this. Probably most of you remember the parable that there there was a man, a servant, who owed the king this uncountable amount of money. It was just a billions and billions of dollars in today's dollar value. And he went to the king and he, he begged the king, please don't throw me into prison. Please, if you, if you just don't throw me into jail, I will pay you every penny eventually. He, he was never able, going to be able to do that, but he begged for that. And, and you remember the parable, it's in Matthew 18, that, that the king forgives the guy the whole debt. All of it, wiped clean. All of it's gone. And, and then the servant goes out and he finds a guy who owes him 20 bucks and he has him thrown in jail. And, and the point of the parable is that how can we, who have been forgiven so much, how can we not forgive others? The, the point of this petition is not if you forgive others, God will forgive you. That, that would be a works-based salvation. And that's not true. But the point of this petition is Because of how God has treated me, that's going to affect how I'm going to treat other people. In light of all that God has done, in light of all the the sins of mine that he has forgiven, how can I not have a heart of forgiveness toward others? It's hard, it's difficult, and yet that's what the Lord calls us to do with his help. We're going to sing right now number 431, which is a Uh, a song that talks about forgiveness and and God's love for us. And uh, we pray that God's forgiveness of us and his love and his grace toward us would would affect us and and allow us to be a people uh, who are forgiving and gracious and merciful toward others. We'll sing And Can It Be. We'll sing stanzas uh, one, three, and five, and let's stand as we sing.
come before the Lord tonight in prayer. Father, we come before your throne of grace tonight, and we thank you that because of Jesus you are our Father, that you promise to provide for us all that we need for body and soul. We thank you that we can trust in you. We thank you that we can look to you. We thank you that You will never leave us or forsake us, and we thank you for the privilege we have of prayer. Fathers, we have made our way through the the Lord's Prayer in the last number of weeks. We we recognize what a, a helpful model prayer that is for us. We pray that your name would be hallowed in our lives, that we would truly know you, that we would honor you and glorify and praise you for who you are and all that you have done for us. We pray that you would help us to direct all of our living, whether it's what we think or say or do, so that we would honor and praise you. We also pray, Father, that your kingdom would come, that you would rule us by your word and spirit so that more and more we would submit to you, that you, by your word and spirit, would preserve and increase your church that you would destroy the devil's work, that you would destroy every force which revolts against you, every conspiracy against your holy word, and that the gospel would continue to spread all throughout this world. We also pray, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives as it is in heaven, that you would help us and all of your people to renounce our own wills, to obey your will, Help us, Lord, to to carry out our callings in life as, as willingly and as faithfully as the angels of heaven. We pray that we would seek to be salt and light in our communities and honor you with all that we do and all that we say. We thank you that you provide for us our daily bread, that you would provide all of our physical needs and uh, that we would recognize, Lord, that, that you are the source, the only source of everything good and that we can trust you And that we can, in a sense, withdraw our trust and our dependence on on everything else and and trust you alone to provide for us. As we have considered the subject of forgiveness tonight, we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. We thank you that the penalty has been paid, that our sins have been washed away by his blood. And we pray now, Lord, that we who are a, 
forgiven people would now be a forgiving people, that we would forgive, that we would ask for forgiveness when necessary, that we would love one another earnestly and serve one another diligently. And we pray that the the truths that we hold so dearly from your word would affect us, would impact us in the way that we live with one another. We pray tonight for your church throughout the world that you would continue to, to bless her. We pray for faithful preachers and elders and deacons and for church members who will use their gifts willingly in the service of one another. We pray for those who live in places of persecution that you would watch over them and protect them. We pray for your missionaries. We pray in particular for those we support, whether it's in Turkey or the Philippines or Nicaragua or Costa Rica. Lord, wherever it is, we we pray that you would bless these workers. We pray that you would use them and encourage them. Keep them safe, Lord. Keep them from discouragement. We also pray for the seminaries we support and other faithful seminaries throughout this world that that they would be diligent in the training of, of men for the gospel ministry. We pray for our civil leaders this evening. Lord, you call us to to lift them up before your throne of grace. And so we do that. We pray for our president. We pray for our governor. We pray for our senators. We pray for our state officials. We pray for our local officials that you would give them wisdom, that they would be men and women of integrity, that they would rule and and lead in such a way that uh, is honoring to you and that is beneficial for your people and for all people in our nation. Father, we thank you tonight that we may gather for worship. We know again, Lord, that there are Christians who are persecuted and oppressed who who can't do this, but who would love to do this. And so we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together. We pray that in all things we would seek to honor and glorify you. We pray that we would give this evening with cheerful hearts. We pray especially for the work of Messiah's Reform Fellowship that you would continue to bless their labors in New York City for the promotion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless us tonight as we study your word. Help us to understand it and to apply it to our lives. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We now give to Messiah's Reform Fellowship and that offering will now be taken.
Thank you, Joanne. Uh, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians is in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We uh, come tonight, as, we men- as I mentioned this morning, to what is called the Day of the Lord. And it's um, talking about the coming of Jesus. I actually uh, promised one of you this morning a date. And when, when this person walked in tonight, they said, I'm here for a date. So I'll see if I can give that date to you. Um, you may not be pleased with the date I give you, but I will give you a date of some kind. First Thessalonians chapter 5, I will begin at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. There are many things in life that, um, while they are in the future, have an effect on how we live our lives right now. In other words, there are events that, that you are looking forward to that, that have an impact on how you live at this moment. For example, if, if you know that you're going on a cruise in three months, you're probably going to start watching what you eat pretty soon because you know that on that cruise ship you're going to have endless amounts of food made available to you. If you know that your car is on its last legs, you're probably going to start saving up a little bit of money so that when your car gives up the ghost, you will have a little bit of money set aside for that new car. The the greatest, most significant event in the future is not a cruise. It's not the purchase of a new car. The the greatest, most significant event that is coming one day in the future is the return of Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know when that's going to be, but we do know it's going to happen. And the fact of the matter is that, that Christ's future return should have an impact on us right now. We saw that last Sunday night, and we're going to see it again tonight. And as I've said to to us many times before, this is a reminder, an important reminder, that theology is practical. It's intensely practical. A doctrine affects our lives. And that's what we're going to see tonight with the second coming. Now, The first thing I want you to notice is I want you to notice there's a phrase that Paul uses in verse 2. It's the phrase, the day of the Lord. 
Now, maybe you've seen that before and you've wondered, what is the day of the Lord? Well, it has a very strong Old Testament connection. If you, if you have your Bible and you want to turn there, you don't have to, but if you want to do that, turn to Isaiah chapter 13 for just a moment. I want you to see the, the connection that, that Paul is going to be making with this phrase, Isaiah chapter 13. And look at verse 6 of Isaiah 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. You notice there twice Isaiah uses that phrase, the day of the Lord. And it's characterized by wailing, by destruction, by wrath, and by fierce anger. Now, there's seven or eight other passages I could ask you to turn to. I'm not going to, but, but the point I want to drive home to you tonight is that all throughout the Old Testament, that phrase is used. Amos uses it, Jeremiah uses it, Ezekiel uses it, Joel uses it, Obadiah uses it, Zephaniah uses it, and Malachi uses it over and over and over. And it always speaks of a time of judgment. Either judgment that is coming upon Israel or judgment that is coming on Babylon or Assyria or some other pagan nation. And and so Paul takes this phrase, the day of the Lord, and he now applies it to the final day of the Lord, the final coming judgment, the final judgment that is coming upon this world. And, And again, knowing that this day is coming should affect us. It, it, should, it shouldn't leave us unmoved. And there are, there are four things we want to see tonight about the day of the Lord. First of all, the day of the Lord will come suddenly. Suddenly. Secondly, the day of the Lord will not surprise the believer. It won't surprise you. Third, the day of the Lord leads to sober living. Sober living. And fourth, the day of the Lord will mean our final salvation. First thing Paul says is that the day of the Lord will come suddenly. He begins this passage by basically saying, you really have no need for me to write anything to you about the end times, right? See that in verse 1? You might remember that, that Paul said something similar to this when he talked about love. He said, you don't really need me to write to you about loving one another. But, but this is what's somewhat humorous to me. You, you look at what Paul says, and he says, you don't, you, don't need to tell, you don't need me to tell you anything about the end times. And then he spends the next several verses telling them about the end times. He says, I, I don't really need to give you any instruction on this, but I'm going to do it anyway. It, it's like when the preacher says, there's not much that can be said on this subject, and then for the next 15 minutes he talks about the subject. Now, based on what Paul says here, it, it seems that the Thessalonians were, were wondering about when Jesus would return. When is the day of the Lord coming? And, and maybe he had addressed this previously when he was in Thessalonica, 
but he's going to go back over it again. And, and there's nothing wrong with that, even though he's already addressed this. There, there are many things, this is just an aside, there are many things that we have learned over the years that we need to hear again. Peter talks about that in, in 2 Peter 1 verse 13. He says, I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. He said, I think it's right for me as long as I'm still alive to, to maybe give you some instruction you've already heard before. We, we should never as Christians take the attitude of, oh, I've heard all about that. I don't need to hear about that anymore. Whatever the subject, whether it's you know, loving one another or the second coming of Jesus or the sovereignty of God or the doctrine of election, it's good and, and necessary and vital for us to be instructed on these things over and over and over. And the first thing Paul tells these Christians about the day of the Lord is that it is going to come suddenly. He says in verse 2, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When does a thief break into our house? When no one's expecting him, right? But the thief doesn't come to your house one day and write you a note and, and say on the note, Next Tuesday, I'm going to break in and I'm going to steal some stuff. No, thieves come unexpectedly. They, they come and they take you by surprise. Several years ago, it was uh, July of 1992. There's your date, Zach. July of 1992. We were moving from uh, Southern California to Washington State. And we were on the final night of our journey up to uh, uh, Bellingham area, Bellingham, Washington, and we stopped in Olympia on the final night of our trip. We came out the next morning, our car had been broken into, and um, important documents that we left in there, marriage license, birth certificates, um, I think some jewelry, a, a VCR, that's how old I am, um, all of it was gone, all of it was taken. Now, now, we didn't expect that to happen. We didn't go into the hotel room that night and say, you know what, I know we're going to get up tomorrow and, and the car is going to be broken into. We didn't expect it to happen. We, we probably should have been more careful. But it was a shock to us. And if you've ever had anything broken into you into before, it's a shock to you. Thieves come when you don't expect it. And, and Paul says here, that's how it will be one day for the unbeliever. The unbeliever will just be living his life not even thinking about eternity, not thinking that at any moment the Lord Jesus could break into this world and come in judgment. There are other passages of the New Testament that, that tell us that as well, that, that Jesus will come suddenly. If you have your Bible, go over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 36. Jesus is giving some extended discourse on the coming judgment. And he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now this isn't some secret rapture of Christians. Notice that the ones who are taken are are likened to those taken in the flood. Children, who was taken in the flood? The wicked were taken in the flood. They were judged in the flood. In other words, those taken when Christ returns are those who are swept up in judgment. The point is that the people will just be living their lives, eating and and drinking, attending weddings, going about their day-to-day work. No thought whatsoever to the coming of Jesus Christ. Now go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter is near the end of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3.3, 3. knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Again, the unbeliever is just living his life. He's not thinking about the judgment. Now look at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's the language of a thief again. Brothers and sisters, we don't know when Jesus will come back. God has not revealed that to us. And the Bible says that, that one day he will come like a thief in the night. It will be like a, a woman going into labor, which, which means suddenly. And, and for the unbeliever, that means, as Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 5, that means that sudden destruction will come upon them. The, the first part of this chapter is screaming a question. It's screaming the question, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you trusting Christ alone to save you? Have you been washed by by his blood? Are you clothed in, in his spotless righteousness? Because he's coming suddenly. We don't know when that day will be. Are you ready? Number two, the day of the Lord will not surprise the believer. Paul says in verse four, you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul makes contrasts here, darkness versus light, night versus day. 
And he says to these Christians in Thessalonica, and he says to all of you tonight, this is who you are. You're you're not in the darkness. You're you're not part of the night. You're, You're children of light. You're children of the day. The, the point is, he's, he's saying to us, remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember your identity. Remember what God has done for you. In the Bible, light is a symbol of God. Jesus himself even said, I am the light of the world. And, and when we are called children of light, that means that we are children of God. We belong to him. We belong to his kingdom. Children and young people, it's, it's important that you remember this from a young age. God, when, when you were baptized, I, I mentioned this this morning, he, he placed his mark of ownership on you. And, and he said to you, in your baptism, you belong to me. You're part of my covenant people. You're not, you're not people of the world. And so Paul is is stressing that again here and he's reminding these Thessalonians and he's reminding us this is who we are. We belong to another kingdom. We belong to another world. Now this is something I I think, at least for me, that that I take for granted. And and if you grew up in the church and you never knew a time when, when Jesus was not your savior. It's maybe, maybe something that you take for granted as well. But God has brought us out of Satan's kingdom. He's brought us out of the, the darkness of our sins. Hanging over our heads by nature was a dark, dark cloud of judgment. Children, if you're, if you're driving down the road and you see dark, dark, dark clouds, you know a storm is, is coming. Could be a pretty bad storm. And the Bible pictures that, that by nature hanging over our heads is this, this dark cloud of, of impending judgment. And did you know that, that because of Jesus that, that dark cloud has been taken away? removed from you not because of what we have done but because of what he has done and 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 as those who have been brought into his kingdom he's opened our eyes to see reality hasn't he he's opened our eyes to 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 see where this world is headed to see that that there's an end that's coming how often do we reflect on that? How often do we, do we thank God and say to him, God, thank you that I, I know where we're headed. Thank you that you have allowed me to see how, how history is going to end. Because as I've said to you before, there, there are many people who, who see this life as nothing but an endless cycle. That's Hinduism, right? In, in Hinduism, it's called um, samsara. Samsara is just the idea that, that things just keep going around and around and around. Many people in our world believe that. In addition to that, there are other people who, they might see history moving on a line, moving forward, going somewhere, but, but it's not really going anywhere, ultimately. 
20th century uh, British mathematician and philosopher, a man by the name of Bertrand Russell, once said this. He said, there is no law of cosmic progress. From evolution, there is no ultimately optimistic philosophy that can be validly inferred. There's no way to know why we're here. There's no way to know where we're going. And there's no way to know where we're going to end up. That's the philosophy of the world. Atheist Richard Dawkins once said, evolution has no long-term goal. No kidding. There is no long-distance target. There is no final perfection to serve as a criterion for selection. In other words, both Russell and Dawkins are saying this, life is ultimately meaningless. It's meaningless. How sad it is to, to view life that way. Either that life is this or that life is just hurtling into nothingness. The Bible tells us something entirely different. We've seen it all through the book of Revelation. We've seen where we're headed. And, and by the grace of God and the grace of God alone, he has opened our eyes to see this. We are headed to something. And therefore, we are not surprised when the day of the Lord comes. In fact, we, we long for that day. One of you said to me this morning as you walked out, you said, I'm ready. We say with, with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because we know where we're headed. And until that day comes, we are, we are called to take that good news, not, not sit on it, but we're called to take that good news through our words and, and through our lives. We are called to take that good news to those who are in the darkness because there are many people in our world who view this life as one big cycle or view this life as headed into nothing but meaninglessness. God's opened our eyes to see the truth. Life has purpose. Life has meaning. History is heading somewhere. And if you're here tonight, and I don't know if this is true of anybody in this room, but if you're here tonight and you believe life has no purpose and no meaning, I want to say to you this evening, that's not true. Life does have a purpose. Life does have a meaning. And I'd be more than happy to talk to you when the service is over. And if you're watching online and you can reach out to us, we would love to tell you life has purpose. Life has meaning. God has provided a way that we might live forever with him. The day of the Lord will not surprise us because we know where we're headed. Number three, the day of the Lord leads to sober living. Paul uses here in verses 6 and 7 a couple of different metaphors. Um, first of all, he uses the metaphor of sleeping. And then he uses the metaphor of being drunk. Now both of these, um, both sleeping and drunkenness, can have adverse effects on us. It can, it can, both of them can affect our ability to think. They can affect our ability to be clear-headed one of the, the reasons why I almost never take a nap is because of how they make me feel. I, I, I cannot, when I wake up, shake the cobwebs out of my head, and I don't like that feeling. 
The same thing is true in a sense with drinking. If, if you drink too much, your, your thinking and your reactions can be severely impaired. And, and the point that Paul is making here is that, that when it comes to the future return of Christ, unbelievers are sleeping. Unbelievers are, are drunk in a sense. Their, their thinking is impaired. They're, they're not paying attention. They just keep eating and, and drinking and, and, and doing stuff. They give no thought to, to the, the coming day of judgment. And to the Thessalonians, Paul says, that's not who you are. You're, you're not part of that kingdom. You're not part of that world. You, you don't belong to the darkness. You belong to the light and therefore live your lives that way. That's what God's saying to us tonight in his word. Live as the redeemed people that you are. Be sober-minded. Live as the citizens of God's kingdom that you are. Paul says something very similar to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, verse 1, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You are citizens of heaven, Paul says. This world isn't your home. Now, there are many wonderful things in this world. But this world is not ultimately our home. And Paul says, therefore, live that way. And it begs the question that we have to ask ourselves, does does my life give evidence that I am a citizen of heaven? Do, Do my priorities... And the things I spend my time on, does my life give evidence that I am a a child of light and not a child of darkness? As Paul says in verse 8, since I belong to the day, I I am called to be sober. That word sober means to be alert, to be watchful. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be sober? What does it mean to be alert? Does that mean you go home tonight, you never go to sleep, you never go to work, you never go to school? You just sit there and you wait for Jesus to come back. You get your lawn chair out, you sit in the backyard and you look up. I'm ready. I'm alert. I'm prepared. No, the the point that Paul is making is that, that knowing that Jesus will come back one day That affects my priorities. That affects my life. It puts everything in this life in its proper place. You can still have your friends. You can still have your hobbies. You can can still go on vacation. You can still enjoy your calling in life. But but at the end of the day, I I realize that, that those things don't have ultimate meaning. Being sober-minded, being alert, being watchful means that we live out what what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. He said, "Don't, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Because you know what? One day, uh, moths and and rust will destroy those things. And and perhaps one day, Jesus says, thieves could, could break in and steal those things. But he says, lay up for yourselves 
treasures in heaven because moth and rust will not destroy those things and thieves cannot break in and steal those things. And then he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what it means to be sober-minded. To live for the things of the world to come. And to do all that we do in this life, whether it's school or work or whatever it is, to honor him and to remember that we, we hold on to these things that the Lord blesses us with in this life, possessions and, and family and friends and work. We hold on to these things with very loose hands because we know that they're gifts from him and we know that ultimately they, they are not the ultimate thing in life. You've probably seen the bumper sticker before. I I haven't seen this in a long time. Maybe people don't do this, but years ago you would see this bumper sticker that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. And and the general idea was that um, that's how people live their lives. It's centered on the things of this world. That's what people live their lives for. There's another bumper sticker that I also saw, and the bumper sticker that one said, He who dies with the most toys still dies. That's true. To realize that we're all headed to that. We're all headed to eternity. We're all headed, every one of us in this room is headed either to eternal joy or eternal misery. And that affects how we live our lives. It means we prioritize the things of eternity. It it means that we are deeply, deeply concerned with instructing our children in the things of God's word. It it means that, that, that we get serious about the spiritual battle that we are in. I think the church, by and large, in, in our nation has become very apathetic, asleep at the wheel. And I think we have to ask the question, have, have we become that way as Christians? Have, have we become that way as a church? Are we asleep at the wheel? Are we asleep to the opportunities that we have as a church? Instead of being reactive all the time, are we ready to be proactive and think about what we can do to impact our society and our culture for God. That's why Paul mentions here, you'll notice, the the breastplate of faith and love uh, uh, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's, He's reminding us we're in a battle, a very serious battle. Faith, hope, and love. Faith is, is trusting God, leaning upon him. Love means serving one another. Hope means that we know that we have something far better than this life to come. And so the day of the Lord leads to sober living. Are we sober? Are we watchful? Are we alert? Number four, the day of the Lord will mean our final salvation. Take a look at verse 9. Paul says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but he's destined us to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He he says something very interesting. We are destined to obtain salvation. And you might say, that sounds like it's talking about something in the future. I I thought I already had salvation. 
Well, you do. And the Bible speaks of your salvation in three different tenses. First of all, the the Bible tells us that believers have already been saved, past tense, from the penalty of sin. Jesus took that sin for us. He took that penalty for us, and we have been saved, past tense, from that. The Bible also tells us that we are being saved, present tense, from the power of sin. In other words, the the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us more and more and more. So there's a present tense to our salvation. And third, the Bible also tells us that one day we will be saved, future tense, from the very presence of sin. That's what we looked at this morning when we were reminded in Revelation 21 that one day all of the effects of sin will be behind us. You think about this tonight. Because of God's electing grace, we are not, you are not, Christian, headed to judgment. You are headed to an eternity in his presence. You are headed to a full salvation, body and soul. That's why we sing, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. From the moment you were born and cried your first cry to the moment that you breathe your last, you are in your God's hands. And he will finish the good work he started in you. Not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of Jesus, who Paul says here, died for us. And so I pray that this passage is a comforting one to you. I pray that it encourages you. I pray that it reminds you of the calling that we have. I pray that it motivates you to press on in the fight. I also pray, though, that we would put into practice the way Paul ends this passage in verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. And so, instead of always talking about our jobs or our favorite sports teams or the weather or whatever else it is that we talk about, nothing wrong with those things. But let's also remember to take the day of the Lord and use it to encourage each other. To say to each other, when when we are down and when we are discouraged and when life is hard and when you're, you're burdened by something or you know someone who is burdened by something, let's take the opportunity to go to them and say to them, do you remember what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5? Do you remember where we're headed? Do you remember that, that God has this in store for you? I know life is tough. I know it's difficult for you. But brother or sister, be encouraged. Be encouraged. Because that day is coming. It's not going to surprise you. It's not going to overcome you or overtake you. It's going to mean your final salvation. That's great joy for us. And a great reason to thank him tonight. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious to us. We thank you that you have opened our eyes to see reality.
You have opened our eyes to see where this world is headed. We pray now that as long as we have life on this earth, we would be sober, watchful, alert, that we would use the gifts, the talents, the time you have given to us to serve your kingdom for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.